Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to welcome you here to the chapel. So glad to be with you. And like Abram said, I want to just say thank you for all of the diapers and the prayers uh, for Turkey and for Syria. It was just a week ago that I was up here and we made the ask and we said, would you join with us in helping to step in? And you said, absolutely. And I just continue to grow in just a love for this church and the generosity that God works through you. So thank you for that. And thank you, Abram, for that update. Now, if we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the sending director here at the chapel. Also going to be teaching here at Segan for a while and excited to continue on in our Romans series. This has been a lot of fun. The last couple of weeks we started in Romans chapter 5 and we had some pretty significant chunks. We had some verses that we had to cover and today we're going to get a chance to slow down a little bit and we're only going to be in two verses as we finish off chapter 5. So we'll get there in a second. Like Abram said, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 5. But this whole chapter of Romans 5 has all been about having peace with God. The fact that we were at war functionally with God because of our sin and because of what Jesus did on the cross and bearing the weight of our sin, of the death that we had earned, we have peace. Paul calls that justification. He said, you have been justified, meaning you have been declared righteous, not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. And if you were, we aren't, but if you were a Jewish background Christian in the church of Rome, and you were reading this argument, that would have raised a very significant question for you. If I am already saved, if I am declared righteous only because of what Jesus has done, what about the law? The Jews for 2,000 years at that point, ever since Moses had given the law, much of what the Old Testament talks about, that is what the Jewish people had built their entire lifestyle around, their entire religion around. It was all about the law. And here Paul is saying, no, you're justified by faith in what Jesus had done. And that would have raised for them this question, well, what, why did we have the law? And if we're thinking deeply and if we're following Paul's logic and his argument throughout Romans 5, then maybe we have similar questions that come up as well. If it's all about grace, if it's all about faith, if what Jesus has done is what has justified us, then why is the Bible so long? Why does it have so many rules? Why does it have so many things that we're supposed to do? If it's all about grace, then why is all of that in there? I actually think that that is a fairly significant problem in the church in America today, that we say, well, if it's all about grace, then I can just do whatever I want. Paul's going to address that next week, and we're going to get there. But I think some of us all actually have a bit of comfort in the law. I think some of us have grown up in church, we know the rules, and we like having a checklist. We like being able to think that we can measure ourselves against some standard 
that we can have some control over how God views us, how we view our relationship with God. So I'm looking forward to be able to slow down a little bit and dive into some of these dynamics. What does it look like for the Old Testament and the New Testament to interact with each other? What does it look like for the law and grace to interact with each other? What does it look like for works and faith to interact with each other? That's where we're going to be going. If you're taking notes, that's our first point, the law and grace. But allow me to pray for us as we get ready to dive into Romans 5 today. So God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We are so grateful that because of what he has done, we have been justified. And God, I pray that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be ready for your word. God, if there's anything that I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. And if there's anything you want to come and say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because the only thing that can change our hearts is your spirit taking your word and applying them to us. So Lord, would you allow me to get out of the way? Would you allow us to be ready to receive from you so that we can be changed? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so only two verses today. We're going to finish chapter 5. So let me read for us out of the NIV in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. It says this. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, what Paul is saying here is that at some point, the law was brought in. That's an important phrase because it shows us that the law was not to be God's central piece of salvation history. It was brought in so it had a beginning, and as we'll see, it has an end. Paul had told us last week in in, uh, verses 12 through 19 that through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. But there was actually a 2,000 year or maybe even closer to 2,500 year period from Adam to Moses where there was no law. Adam was the first man. Moses is who God sent the law through. So there was some interaction with God for those 2,000 plus years. There were people that you can see in Genesis like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph that interacted with God without a law, without a set of rules to follow from God. So if, if things worked that way for so long, then the question should raise in our minds, then why bring in the law at all? What really is the point? And we're going to get there in a minute. But first, let me take a minute and just lay out what is the law that Paul is talking about here? Well, when the the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God came in through the 10 plagues to free them, think Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments movie, depending on your generation. That's probably exactly how this all unfolded. At least that's how it's pictured in my mind, especially with the songs. I love the songs. We've got to bring Prince of Egypt back. And God came, freed the people of Israel, brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law gave them a set of rules for them 
to follow. In the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses spends time laying this out for the people of Israel. When we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, and of course, it included that, but it included so much more than that. There was lots of laws governing all areas of life. There were moral laws where God was saying, this is right, this is wrong. There were civil laws. How will the people of Israel interact in a government where God is king? There were religious laws. How do we actually relate to God? How do we pay for our sins and and make sacrifices of animals? But this also wasn't unique because every nation around them would have had a law as well, a way for them to follow their God. But one of the things that was unique for Israel was that it wasn't just about guiding them, but the law was actually one of the ways that God made his name known among the nations. Look at this. I love this out of Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering and take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? I love that. There was actually a missionary purpose of the law. God wasn't just giving people something to do. He was making his name known. As we go through Romans, we're going to see that the law is actually good. So often when we think about the law, we think of it as something bad. We think of it as limiting. We think of it as something that the people of God don't need to worry about anymore. And we will get there. But as we'll see as we keep going through Romans, the law is good. The problem isn't the law. The problem is us and our complete inability to follow the law. So this law had functional purposes for the people of Israel. It showed them what to do and not to do. It it was a way for God to put his name on display. That was the functional purpose. But I think what Paul's getting at here is what is the ultimate purpose? What is the cosmic purpose of the law in salvation history? Well, Paul tells us, he says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now, what does that mean? Last week, we saw Paul make this statement that I just kind of jumped over, and he said that uh, where there is no law, sin is not counted. Well, what what does that mean? What Paul is, is saying is that the sin that Adam brought in exists within us, but without some standard that is given by God, there's no way to actually tell what your sin looks like, right? So sin is a power. It's a, it's a presence, a monster. You think of it that way. But trespass is an action. Trespass is breaking a rule. Trespass is sin taking on objective shape, So part of what it means for the trespass to increase is that our sin is now revealed. We actually get to see 
our sin. But I think it's also more than that. I think it's also not just that the revealing of our sin is increased, but the actual number of trespasses are also increased. The more rules there are, the more rules we're going to break, right? Because we know that those things are inside of us. So the trespasses themselves actually increase. But I think it's even still more. I think sin increasing the trespass also means that our actual understanding of our complete inability to follow God's rules is increased. When we see what God has asked of us and see how we fall short, our understanding of what's really inside of us is increased. But I think there's even still more. I think that also as the trespasses increase through sin, the sin that lives inside of us is provoked. What do I mean by that? Well, we all know within us, or maybe I can just speak for myself, that when something says, don't do this, what do you want to do? You want to do that, whatever that is, right? So painters used to say, don't touch wet paint. And lots of people would touch the paint. So now they just say wet paint and a lot less people touch it. When there's a prohibition against something, our sin is provoked. So as as sin comes in and trespasses are increased, all of those things happen. And, And in summary, what we're talking about here is that what the law does is it shines a spotlight on our sin. It reveals what's already inside of us. The law is not there to make us better people. It can't do that. It can't help us. We might be able to follow some of the laws, some of the time, but it does nothing to change our heart. But the law was also not given to make us worse people. It's just there to show us what is already inside of us. Paul further explains this in another letter that he wrote to a church in, in Galatia in, in uh, chapter 3, in verse 23. You'll see it on the screen, but it says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Like a, law, like a teacher, the law schools us in our inability to be who God has called us to be. It locks us up. It throws us in prison. And it throws away the key. That is, until Christ came. But until he came, until faith was revealed, all the law could do is show us that we can't be justified through following the law. All the law does is shine a bright light on the sin that is already within us. I've come to think of the law uh, like a mirror in the gym, right? If you've been to a gym lately, you know that there are mirrors everywhere. And mirrors have absolutely nothing to do with helping you get in shape. All they do is show you what's already there, right? They show you how bad you probably think you look. They show you how bad your form is when you're trying to do an exercise. 
right? All a mirror in a gym can do is reveal to you what already is there. It has nothing to do to help us and to change us. The only way change is possible is not through the mirror. It's not through the law. It is only through Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. And we're going to get there in the weeks to come. But there's something else that the law did. Look again at verse 20. It says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So we looked at what the law is. Well, what is, what is grace? Well, the first thing that I want us to see here is in, this, in these verses, uh, the same word is used for both grace and the trespass, right? Increased. That does not do the original language any justice. They are two completely different words. What this should say is as sin increased, grace super increased. This is not that sin increases and concurrently grace increases. This is as sin increases, grace overflows. It's abundant. It's never ending. So what actually is grace? Well, grace is favor that we are given that we did not earn, that we could never achieve. And I find it helpful to compare it to some other Bible words. All right, so I'll throw a couple up on the screen. Judgment means getting what you deserve. You did something wrong and you are paying the penalty. Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. You did something wrong and you are not punished for it. But grace means getting what you don't deserve. You've done something wrong. Not only do you not have to pay the penalty, but you are given something good in exchange. And grace is one of those words that, or one of those concepts in Christianity that really pushes against our worldview. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this concept of worldview, these deep-seated core things at the bottom of who we are that make all of the decisions, all of the thoughts, all of the actions, ultimately they bubble up from those worldview core beliefs. They're deeper than our values. They're deeper than just the things that we say that we believe. They are the things that drive who we are. And as I've thought about grace through that lens, there's at least three things about grace that radically push against the worldview that I think many of us have grown up with. The first is, you know, I actually don't think I deserve death. I actually think I'm a fairly good person. Grace literally means that we deserve to die and God took the penalty for us. That pushes against our worldview. But maybe we can grant that uh, I actually am a bad person, but if that's true, someone else can't pay for me. I made the mistake. I should be the one that follows through on it. But even if we grant that, even if we say that someone takes, uh, takes the penalty for me, they definitely shouldn't give me something good on top of it. 
When you break a law, you're not expecting to get good from those things. It radically pushes against our worldview. And we live in a culture that is constantly trying to make us improve ourselves and enjoy ourselves and leave a legacy for ourselves. But here's the thing. When we forget the grace of God, when we don't live under the grace of God, the only option is to try to follow the law. And for you or for those in our culture, that might mean following the rules we think God has for us. Maybe that means following the rules that the culture might have for us. Maybe that means following the rules that are generated inside of you, that if you think you can do these things, then you'll be good. So I want to take a moment and meditate on that for a little bit. What does it actually look like to live in light of law and forget grace. I think there's several different ways that, that, that this can look. And I would ask you to meditate even on your own heart and mind and see if you see yourself in any of these. The, the first, for some people, when they try to, when they don't live under grace, they try to live under law, is they try to double down on their own efforts. They feel really good about the rules that they can keep. It's easy to judge people when you see them not keeping the rules. And it's really easy to forget about the rules that we're not good at keeping. We focus on the ones that we are good at keeping. If this was somebody looking at the mirror in the gym, this would be uh, the guy in the corner who's kind of flexing in front of the mirror, right? It's like, I feel, I feel pretty good about this. You know, they're the ones that are lifting up their shirt, checking out their abs. The gym I work out at, there's a bunch of high school boys in the locker room that are just constantly in front of the mirror, lifting up their shirt and, and flexing and all of that. And I really don't want to, I mean, I don't want to be too loud when I laugh at them because 20 years ago, I was that guy. So I was, I'm, there's shame there. And all I can think about is, man, in 20 years, you guys are going to be so embarrassed that, anyway, that's beside the point. So many of us, that's where we live, right? It's like, man, I feel pretty good about my ability to do this. For others, not living under grace, but living under law le leads you to live a double life. You know how to put on a good face. You know how to play the game at church. You know how to make people think that your relationship with God looks good. You know where to show up. You know when to go to community group. You know how to pray in public. But when you're outside of the church world, the people that you're with wouldn't know that you follow Jesus. Hypocrisy is full grown. We know that we can't follow the law, but at least we can make people think that we can, and that makes us feel good. If the law was a mirror in the gym, this would be the person that shops at Lululemon, has all the best clothes, goes into the gym and walks around so that everybody sees them, and then leaves without getting a workout in. And I think many of us struggle with that. It's like, man, I know I can't fully follow God, but... Maybe I can make people think that I do. I think for others, this is uh, not living under grace, but living under law eventually just leads to frustration. You think, man, I can't follow the rules. And when I try and when I do, it doesn't actually make me feel good. So Christianity must not be right. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the parts that I like 
And then I'm going to take the rest and conform Jesus to look like me. Today, we call that deconstruction. And it's becoming more and more popular as people go on social media loudly and say, man, I tried all that stuff and it didn't work. This is how Christianity could look and it'll make you feel good. That's ultimately what deconstruction is. And really, there's not many other options, right? If we're not living under grace, then we should be doing everything we can to try to make ourselves feel good. And the law can't do that, right? If the law was a mirror in the gym, this would be looking at yourself in the mirror through an Instagram filter that allows you to look like however you want. This analogy is getting very difficult to maintain, um, but we'll, 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 we'll keep going. We'll keep going with it. Still another option people have when they don't live under grace, but live under the law. They look at the law and they say, you know what? There is no way I can measure up. I can never reach that standard. I could never get to a point where God would love me because I'm following these rules like everybody else that seems like they got it. I might as well give up. This would be the person who goes into the gym, looks in the mirror, doesn't like anything they have to see, and walks out never to return. And all four of those options are really, really hopeless. And maybe you're here today and you can relate to one or multiple of those. But we shouldn't be surprised because that's what the law does. That is all the law can do. The law is of no help. All it can do is increase the trespass. For me, I spent a big chunk of my life vacillating between the first and second example. The one who is, feels like he's really good at following the rules, but also kind of lives a double life. I grew up a, a church kid grew up going to church. I was the stereotypical self-righteous kid that could memorize the scriptures in Awana and do some really good things. And I felt really, really good about that when I went to church. But there was also these sins that I never told anybody about. Some sins that I knew that I could not get over on my own. I didn't reach out for help and it caused me to live a double life. And back in high school, I remember I had a, I had a Bible I wish I could find it because it would be a, it, now a trophy of God's grace. But in the back of that Bible, you will see about a dozen dates, all of them scratched out. And that was my attempt to say, today, I'm going to stop sinning. And since I wrote that date in my Bible, I'm going to have extra power to do it. And every one of those dates is just scratched out. Because... When I look at the law, all it does is increase trespass. I wouldn't have called it then looking into the law, but when I saw my sin, when the spotlight was on my sin, I knew there's nothing I could do about it. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been coming to church, you know the answers, but what does it really look like for grace to come in and change things? What does it really look like to actually live in light of grace? What does it really look like to know that we have failed because we have all failed? But that God still came after us. 
That is where grace comes in. Now, there's lots of ways to live under law, like we talked about, but there's really only one way to live under grace. To humbly and in full submission say, I need help. And to receive the grace that God has so freely given in giving up his son. He died for you. And in order to do that, it, it takes admitting a couple things. It takes admitting that, you know what? I can't follow the law. It also means admitting when it comes down to it, in and of myself, I don't want to follow the law. And when I do try to do some good things, I don't do it for God. I do it to make myself feel better. And as we admit those things and as we come to God, we're able to receive and have it transform us. Fair justice for all that sin that the law is shining a spotlight on means we die to pay the penalty. Mercy would mean, well, we, we don't have to die. But grace means not only do you not have to die, but you're given life. What Adam earned for the human race was sin entering this world and death coming through sin. And what Jesus brought to this world is the only source of where righteousness can actually come from. And when we receive it, when we receive that super increasing grace, then we get to live in abounding grace, which is how some translations put it. So that's the next point in your outline, abounding grace. Now, here's the thing. Without increasing of the trespass that the law brought, we wouldn't get to experience this massive flood of grace into our hearts and over our lives. And here's why that's significant. And I need you to lean in and hear this because some of you need to hear this this morning. What abounding grace means is that you, yes, you are not beyond the grace of God. As sin increases, it's not that grace just increases to try to catch up. Grace overflows. It abounds. For those of you in here that think that I've already sinned too much, there's no way God could love me. Grace is super increasing. For those that think you have to pay God back for something that maybe he's given you, grace is super increasing. For those of you that think that you're right on the edge and one more sin would cause God to not love you and not forgive you anymore and eventually abandon you, grace is super increasing. For those of you that know your past and know your heart and know your temptations and know that there's nothing that you could do to change those things in you, grace is super increasing. What Paul is saying here is twofold. Yes, you should feel your sin. 
That's what the law does. It's a burden. It's shackles. We are locked up, constantly coming face to face with the fact that there is absolutely nothing that we can do. And that should feel burdensome. But at the same time, grace increases more. And when we know that deep down at the worldview level, then when we look in the mirror at the gym, we don't see ourselves. We see Jesus. We see the one who saw our sin and said, I will pay that for you. We see the one that actually completely fulfilled the law and took on that burden for us and laid down his life. We see the one that every time we sin, Jesus says, he's with me. We see the one that every time the sin and the trespass increases, Jesus says, she's with me. I have already covered her. Jesus didn't come to make it easier to live under the burden of the law. He came to free you from the shackles of the law by putting on the shackles himself all the way to the cross. He didn't come to give us more power so that we could be perfect. He came to give us his perfection. That's justification. That's what it means to have peace with God. So please hear me when I say this, or rather hear Paul. If you are in Christ, if you have given your life to him, there is nothing that you can do to make him love you more. No amount of going to church, no amount of giving money, no amount of going to community group, no amount of reading the Bible, no amount of any religious activity can you do to make him love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. No amount of sin, no amount of trespass, no amount of mistakes, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what is deep within your heart that the bright light of the law shines on and makes you feel guilty and at shame at night, none of those things can make him love you any less because he has already given his life for you. And if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, does that mean that we should just keep sinning? Because that's the way that more and more grace comes? Ah, Paul anticipates that question. We're going to look at that next week. But for now, let us rest. Let us rest in the abundant, super-increasing, never-ending, overflowing, Grace of Jesus. That's what peace with God looks like. It's knowing that we were never meant to live under the shackles of the law. It was just meant to be a guardian until Christ came. And when you get to experience that, it allows you to experience what we say is our third point. It's grace in life. Here's our second verse. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I spent a lot of time on that first verse. I wish I had the same amount of time for this last verse, but man, I love this verse. Picture a symphony. 
Romans chapter five is this symphony that all throughout, from the beginning to the end, it's been building and building and building and building. And finally it crescendos in what all of this is about, in what justification is about, in what peace with God is about, in what the hope of glory is about. All of these things that we've been talking about, this verse crescendos, and it it starts with that all important so that. As grace abounds, I see it in this verse saying that it does three things. The first is that sin takes over, or sin is on the throne. In Jesus, grace takes over the throne. Grace takes over the power dynamics in this universe. Adam brought sin and death and everyone is born into the mastery of those two slave drivers but grace takes over and doesn't just give us the grace that we need, but when grace reigns, it actually puts sin and death and the devil and hell to open shame because it's not just about us having a good life. It's about Jesus being displayed in this world against all evil, against all sin, against all death, but not just that. Grace comes in and it exemplifies our life and it culminates in eternal life. As grace comes and as we receive from him, we're giving everything that we need in order to follow God in grace in this life. That means that we don't have to prove ourselves to him. That means we don't have to use other people to feel good, but we can walk knowing that we already have everything from him and that culminates in life eternal. And if I had 30 more minutes to talk about what that looks like, the infinite praise and glory of Jesus, that we need eternity in heaven because eternity is when we only begin to scratch the surface of the goodness of God. It is unsearchable and grace leads to that, but not just that. The verses end. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace reigning is not just for you to have what you need for this life, not just for you to have what you need for eternal life, not just to put the glory of God on display against sin and death and the devil, but ultimately grace reigns to magnify King Jesus. It's all about him. It is all about his name and fame in this world. And as grace reigns through sin and death that Adam brought in, we receive and Jesus is magnified. It is all about the worship and the praise of King Jesus. I'm going to pause so I can actually land the plane because I'm getting a little excited. So why the law? so that the trespass can increase, so that we can receive super-increasing grace, so that Jesus receives super-increasing glory. So how do we respond? How do we respond to the grace of God? There are three options. Either you say, no, I got this. I can follow the rules. I'm good. Actually, God's pretty lucky to have me on the team because I got this thing down. That mindset says Jesus' death was unnecessary. 
because I can take care of myself. Third, second option is really glad Jesus died for me, but he needs a little bit of my help. This is Jesus' death plus the things that we can do. That yeah, I'm really glad I had the, the kickstart from the death of Jesus, but I still need to obey all these things and do all these things, and otherwise I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up. I've got a word for that from Kevin McKee. Kind of punched me in the in the gut a little bit. If that's you, then the death of Jesus is disappointing. It means I'm glad it's here, but I need the help. That's a terrible place to live. It's also a very common place to live. The third option and the only option that the gospel gives us is that we open our arms in humility and submission and say it is in Christ alone. It is only in Jesus. There is nothing that I add to it. The only thing that I add to the grace of Jesus is the sin that sent him to the cross in the first place. But he willingly went, willingly fulfilled the law when we couldn't, died the death that we deserved. So what role do our works play? What role do the things that we do play? We're going to get there. We're going to get there in chapter six, in chapter seven. But for now, let us rest in the never-ending grace of Jesus. As sin increased, grace super increases. That means you are never, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you are never beyond the grace of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. And at the worldview level, God, would you cause us to believe that you already, through the death of your son, through faith, have already given us everything that we need and grace is overflowing. Would we live in that? Would we rest in that? And Lord, for those in the room that, like me, often in my life, think, well, man, maybe he'll love me more if. Maybe I'll receive more if. Maybe I'll lose it if. Would you allow us, through your word, to lay those thoughts completely aside and to rest fully in the abundant, sufficient grace of Jesus. In his name, amen. Now we're gonna end with a beautiful song. Love this song so much as we sing out that Jesus reigns. It's called A Beautiful Name. We've sung it many times here. And my encouragement to you is not just to sing this song, not just to stand and enjoy the music, but that you would preach these words over your own mind and over your own heart. So would you stand with us as we sing? Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.